From the east coast of America and the front lines of American healthcare and healthcare research, it's the Dashing Doctor. Back again after another somewhat prolonged hiatus, for which, again, I do apologize. But back again with the anniversary issue, everyone. A little overdue, but uh, a little over a year ago today, we all got on board the Dashing MD podcast, or at least I did. Many of you have joined us over that year. Some of you who've joined us midstream have probably gone back and listened to some of those early episodes. I myself have gone back now and listened to some of those early episodes, and it's amazing how far, at least to me, it seems things have come over the course of a year. There's 25 episodes. This will be the 25th. It's called episode 22, but there were the three ER diaries as well. I started this a year ago working in the trauma intensive care unit on a weekend off, thinking, what's this whole podcasting thing about? And here I am a year later, a continent away, and it seems like that day was yesterday, and it seems like that day never happened, that it was some sort of a dream, both at once, which is an interesting feeling. And it's been uh, it's been an adventure traveling from there to here, um, and it's been a pleasure certainly having you along. So without further ado, there are a few things I wanted to uh, cover in the this anniversary episode. First of all, for those of you who are listening for the first time, welcome. Um, this uh, podcast talks about medicine and uh, used to talk a lot about clinical medicine. Now it talks a little bit more about medical research and the medical industry as a whole because I've moved away from clinical medicine, but don't worry, there are plenty of blood and guts stories out there still to be told. This podcast is available by subscription to the podcast at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd. You can also get it for free on iTunes, just search for dashingmd, or you can uh, subscribe by going to the blog, which is dashingmd.blogspot.com, and there's little buttons on there that you can click that will subscribe you to the feed. Um, I recommend you do check out the blog. It's got some good links to some of our uh, comrades out there in the podcasting world, the medical world, um, some good, interesting links to go to. It's got some little videos to see, and uh, hopefully it, it, uh, it is a, an ever-evolving resource for people who are interested in the kind of conversations that we're having. The email, now this is an important point, the email has changed. Um, I was getting totally spammed out at dashingmd at yahoo.com, and so I have changed the email. It's now dashingmd at gmail.com, and I welcome your comments and your thoughts, and uh, I'm thrilled to say that uh, we're going to be going to the mailbag in a little bit here because some of you guys out there have uh, gone to, uh, to the email and sent me email. Some other news about the podcast on this anniversary broadcast uh, I have opened up a Facebook page for the podcast. Um, and so if you are into the whole social networking thing, the, uh, the lab manager at my lab, who is uh, 23 and just out of college, um, was obsessed with Facebook, is obsessed with Facebook. And she has made me similarly obsessed with Facebook. It's, um, I thought it was the province of 14-year-old girls, and it turns out that it is actually pretty amazing. I'm really impressed with its ability to dig old friends out of the woodwork. 
Um, so obviously I have a Facebook page, um, but in the spirit of anonymity that we perpetuate here on the podcast, uh, that's not the page to which I will direct you. Um, the page to which I will direct you is uh, if you go to Facebook and you search for Dashing Doctor. Um, I don't just seemed more interesting somehow. That's Dashing, D-A-S-H-I-N-G, in the last name, D-O-C-T-E. You are Doctor, uh, a little continental flavor for the Facebook page. Um, so hopefully that'll be a fun resource. Um, if you're on Facebook and want to be friends with me on Facebook, that'd be awesome. Uh, it'd be really fun, and uh, we can maybe get a little network of people uh, on the Facebook page who uh, who can have a conversation. Um, so yeah, reach out to me on Facebook, and you will find that I uh, quickly befriend you. Oh, one quick codicil. If you hear uh, crashings and smashings and um, bleedings in the background on the podcast, it's because I'm now sharing uh, the room that I am living in with two very small, very nice kittens. And they're very nice, uh, but they do have a tendency to kind of rip things off the walls and tumble things out of bookcases. Um, And they've just had a very long nap and are now awake and running around. And it promises to be a little bit interesting so i'm kind of keeping an eye on them um and we'll see how that goes i'm very excited about that uh, new transition in my life i feel like a parent um and i'm always looking at them and worrying about them and having to think about them um and they're mine i i had talked about getting cats for a long time um there's no way my lifestyle would accommodate really any sort of pet that required me to be around but um wanted something that was animate and mammalian um, after the fish I had in med school. And uh, now, through the provenance of fate, uh, I find myself parent to two very delightful uh, little kittens. I'll put a picture of them on the blog, and you guys can look at it and admire them too. Um, And I'm sorry to say they're better than your kittens. They're just so great. Um, And their names are Miniver and Cheevy. And there's a story behind that. Um, Miniver Chivi is a favorite poem of mine, and I think it perfectly describes the uh, plight of any cat of any surgical resident in the world. Um, so if you'll bear with me, I will, I will tell you this poem, which I think is just too perfect for words um, for these poor cats. So this is Miniver Chivi by E.A. Robinson. Miniver Chivi, child of scorn, grew lean while he assailed the seasons. He wept that he was ever born, and he had reasons. Miniver loved the days of old, when swords were bright and steeds were prancing. The vision of a warrior bold would set him dancing. Miniver sighed for what was not, and dreamed, and rested from his labors. He dreamed of Thebes and Camelot and Priam's neighbors. Miniver mourned the ripe renown that made so many a name so fragrant. He mourned romance now on the town, and art a vagrant. Miniver loved the Medici, albeit he had never seen one. He would have sinned incessantly could he have been one. Miniver cursed the commonplace and eyed a khaki suit with loathing. He missed the medieval grace of iron clothing. Miniver scorned the gold he sought, but sore annoyed was he without it. 
Miniver thought and thought and thought and thought about it. Miniver Cheevy, born too late, scratched his head and kept on thinking. Miniver coughed and called it fate and kept on drinking. I think it's great. Um, and I hope you enjoy it too. So now, without further ado, let's get to the body of the podcast. And on this anniversary issue, I'm thrilled to say that uh, we are going to be going to the mailbag. There's nothing I love more than going to the mailbag um, because creating a sort of conversation between you folks and me is what I'm doing this for. And um, while I don't mind having to put together uh, independent content out of my own head, I always think it's much more fun for me and probably a lot more interesting listening for you if I'm answering questions that you guys have actually come up with. So a couple shout outs. First, after the uh, Dr. Anonymous radio show, and if you haven't heard the Dr. Anonymous radio show, I definitely recommend checking in it out. Um, there's a link off the blog, dashingmd.blogspot.com. You can hear the hour-long interview that I did with Dr. Anonymous. You can also check out some of his other uh, radio shows. He's a uh, eons ahead of me in terms of uh, the technology and the, the ethos of podcasting and, and webcasting and uh, definitely check him out um, that was uh, almost a month ago now or over a month ago now that I did that and um, I hope that you forgive me the lapse in between but um, we heard of, from a bunch of folks after that uh, radio show uh, one was our old friend Jared who it turns out is also from Colorado so um turns out we share a native state and it's always great to hear from people there and to hear from uh, the midwest and the west out there uh, which is great country that i don't see enough of uh we heard from julie who enjoyed the show and uh said that she would recommend the show to her daughter's boyfriend who's a second year med student and uh hopefully that recommendation was made and hopefully uh they haven't been sitting around too long waiting for a new episode um, Julie's daughter's boyfriend, uh, welcome to the show if you are out there. And then we heard from Amanda, um, who says, Hi Dashing, hope all is well. I love listening to Dr. Anonymous show. and was sad I was unable to catch it live to call in. Uh, recently I've been contemplating the issue of patients' rights, specifically regarding minors in the healthcare setting. What is appropriate and what is not, not only legally but ethically? What do we do with a 17-year-old who's pregnant or has an STD and does not want her parents to know and the parents are demanding a diagnosis? I've also heard of some parents asking hospital staff not to inform their child that he or she is dying. Um, what if the child asks? Or you have an older teenager who would like to quit painful cancer treatments, but the parents are determined to fight. When should the child's rights come before the parents? Hope this is not too much of a downer. It just has me questioning lately. I wanted your thoughts. So, well, thank you, Amanda. I, I think these are great, great questions. Um, and I think that you're absolutely right. And you've sort of put your finger on some of the major ethical issues that exist in medicine today. And that is this issue of uh, consent and who, when can you consent and who's eligible to consent and how do you make the decision about informing people um, be they children or even be they, you know, adults who, for cultural reasons, don't want to know um, their diagnosis, uh, which exists a lot. And it, this is something that we, we talk about endlessly in medicine and that it is sort of one of the big sort of bugaboos of surgeons who don't generally like to get 
involved in this morass. I think the majority of surgeons would rather that their patients just be unconscious and have a nice surgical diagnosis that they cut in and cut out, and uh, and that's that. I am, as you maybe have guessed from listening to the podcast, not sort of, I don't hold with the great majority of surgeons on most things, and so I actually think that this is uh, one of the reasons that I love medicine is is the fact that these there aren't these cut and dried answers to everything we do, that there is this uh, constant need to evaluate and think about the ethics of what we do. Specifically answering your question, minors generally cannot consent for things like surgical procedures. So if you're under the age of 18 is the age of consent in some most places. Some places it's younger, it's 16. Um, there's always the case of the emancipated minor who are children who uh, you know have gotten married or have moved out of the house and sort of become legally emancipated from their parents. And they actually at any age, once they've become legally emancipated or have the right to do that. But those obviously are conditions that are few and far between. The vast majority of kids who are living at home um, will have to get their parents' official consent for something like surgery. Now, there are exceptions to that, and usually birth control and STD treatment are among those exceptions. Um, That can actually be a fairly straightforward process if the child comes to... Uh, your office on their own. Now, if they come with their parent and their parent's sitting in the room, what do you do? Generally, the teaching for stuff like birth control and STDs is that, you know, with with adolescence, you want to make sure that there is some time when you are alone with the patient or you and a nurse are alone with the patient to talk about these issues without the parents there. Because, uh, you know, it's not just necessarily an issue of treatment but an issue of trust that you need to establish early with patients that you're there for their primary interest and um, and they need to feel that they can speak with you about things without their parents knowing about them and the doctor patient confidentiality issues actually do I think extend to pediatric patients so if you're talking to a 13 year old and they tell you something in confidence you you actually are not necessarily within your rights to, to tell the parents about anything they say. At least that's my understanding of it. And uh, as always, I'm not a lawyer and I, you know, don't, don't make clinical judgments based on what I say, but um, that's always been my understanding. But it's a murky, murky territory. And some of these other things that you talk about, about not telling uh, kids about the nature of their diagnosis um, or, uh, you know, kids who want to go into hospice care um, when their parents want to keep fighting. I mean, these are really, really fraught issues. And the way that those things are sort of typically dealt with, because they're not frequent, um, and they sort of step outside the normal realm of care, which is that people just want to be treated with whatever you can do, um, is uh, something called an ethics consult. And an ethics consult is uh, where you get sort of professional ethicists to come in and uh, weigh with you um, the proper way to go forward. And, um, you know, and there are professional ethicists. There are people out there whose sole job it is to sort of think logically through these problems, uh, weighing the pros and cons and the sort of 
there's some basic rules about ethical behavior that they can try to sort of fit any situation to. Uh, and in my experience, it's actually really helpful. I mean, you sort of initially think that you know, these guys are a bunch of turkeys and they, you know, just sort of sit around scratching their noses and come up with some arbitrary decision. But, you know, in the few cases I've had where we have needed to get an ethics consult, all of which have been around issues like this, issues of uh, who's eligible to consent for a procedure. Um, it's always been been really uh, quite helpful and is also a nice sort of something to fall back on when you go to the patient's parents and say, you know, we uh, have to respect your child's wishes. On the basis of this ethics consult, it tends to work better. Um, or if you go to a child and say, you know, we have to respect your parents' wishes. You know, I, my experience, again, with this is, is usually these things can sort of be talked through. Um, and you can kind of compromise if you just sort of understand why everybody's coming at it from the direction that they're coming in. And that means sitting down and sort of saying, you know, why don't you want your child to know about their diagnosis? And usually it's the basis of a lot of misconceptions on everybody's part about kind of what's going on. And as in so many things, it's just a matter of, of having good communication. I'm trying to think of a, a good example of a case where, where this was, uh, something that we saw, but I... I must admit, I'm sort of coming up blank other than some sort of vague memories of um, calling consults for uh, issues of uh, consent in teenagers. Um, usually it's the teenager who's refusing and the, um, the parents who want something done. Um, and it's, it's always been a case where uh, the eth ethics folks have said, you can't do this without the child's assent. Um, the parents have to consent for the procedure, uh, but the child has to agree to undergo the procedure. And so in those cases, it's, it's always been something that we've sort of talked through. And, and the kid actually, in, in all my experiences, ended up getting it done. But it usually was just they were sort of holding out because they wanted to push a point with their parents or make a political point. And, and, and I think they were well in their rights uh, to, to do that. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. Um but uh, hopefully it sort of opens, opens the door to a broader world of, of what it means in medicine to look at ethics in pediatric populations. It's, um, it's complicated because, you know, one day, you know, when you're 17 days, 364 days old, you need your parents to sign off on things, and, and then the next day you don't. Um, but fortunately, I think that the situations where that really comes to into play are, are few and far between and hopefully laws have sort of allowed you the freedom to do what you need to do in the vast majority of, of cases so that question from Amanda and then just a few days ago got a message from Cody um, Cody uh, has written into us before as you recall he's a 16 year old kid who uh, is planning to go into cardiac surgery as I recall so um Thrilled to hear from him, and he uh, he writes, "Hey, dashing." I know it's been a while since last time I've written in, but I've still been listening to every episode as they come out. Hopefully, your next episode will come out soon. I check every day, seeing as every episode come out seem to come out at random intervals. Indeed, Cody, it's true, and I apologize. Um, yeah, it's uh, what can I tell you? Um, it's probably due to the fact that you're busy with your research. You're not wrong. 
Um, which brings me to my question. I was wondering what you're researching for two years and if all residents do this. Um, and from listening to your podcast, I've noticed in most of the experience you share with us, there seems to be a good amount of interacting with the patient's family. Although in previous podcasts, you mentioned the lack of time you get to spend with patients and their loved ones. Are these stories just specific cases? Also, I was wondering if there are any differences um, between being a medical intern and surgical intern other than surgical interns perform surgery, obviously, and medical deals with the patients one-on-one more. I was just wondering, this coming from a 16-year-old whose best look into the lives of doctors is scrubs. I hope you're doing well. Well, thank you, Cody. Yeah, sorry about the random interval thing. Um, I, you know, one thing with this podcast is it definitely is... Um, my life now is different. I mean, I I have a lot more time, but it used to be that uh, I only did one thing. And so when I wasn't doing that one thing, I was really very free. Now I'm doing some classes. I'm doing the research. I got a bunch of other stuff going on. You know, I'm trying to sort of live a life. And, um, and in a way that makes like scheduling stuff even harder um, because, you know, it's, it used to be I'm either working or if I'm not working, then I'm free. And now it's uh, it's a little less clear. So it, yeah, I'm working on it. Hopefully we'll get back to a sort of a regular bi-weekly thing. Um, 25 episodes over 52 weeks or so. You know, we're more or less on track for every other week. And I'll try to sort of head us back there. But anyway, getting to your real question. Um, what am I researching for two years? I am researching... Um, the way that uh, the human body responds to different stressors. So uh, we look at hemorrhagic shock, uh, which is shock from uh, excessive bleeding. We look at septic shock, which is shock from infection. And we look at those over a couple different time courses. We look at them over the course of just a few hours, and we also look at them over the course of many days. And we look specifically at changes in different small molecules uh, in the blood and other organs in those uh, shock states. So shock um, basically means any condition where uh, organs are not getting adequate blood flow. And uh, in hemorrhagic shock, that comes from just there not being adequate blood to be flowed around to all the organs. Um, in septic shock, it comes from uh, the body's response to infection, which is to sort of uh, segregate blood flow into different areas and uh, to, to sort of disrupt the adequate flow of nutrition and oxygen to uh, some of your vital organs. And, um, and we look at what happens to certain molecules when, when that goes on. So we work with a rat model. Uh, and it's, um, it's pretty neat, actually. It's, it's a bunch of sort of very basic science things where we, uh, you know, sort of take, uh, take the blood and we, uh, we separate it out into its different components and we look at them in different ways. We also do, uh, a fair amount of surgery, um, where we go and we, we harvest different portions of, uh, different various different organs and sort of go through them and um, it's neat there's this feeling I think in a lot of medicine that your your job is to just sort of implement knowledge that exists already for the betterment of a patient uh, and the purpose of this research time is to remind us that we as doctors actually uh, know a lot of science and and to give us a chance to sort of contribute to how 
knowledge is obtained um, to sort of be a part of not just uh, the implementation of, of knowledge, but the acquisition of knowledge. Um, and I think it's actually, it's tremendously important to have doctors involved in research and, um, and to have people who have seen the clinical manifestations of these diseases in patients um, involved in studying how they work because it allows you to ask questions in a way that I think PhD scientists who just are interested in sort of the molecular level um, can't really appreciate, you know, if they haven't seen what it looks like in a, in a person. So I'm thrilled to be doing it, and I, and I plan to continue kind of doing this throughout my career. Um, it's, it's a big part of what I want to be, and a, and a big part of the sort of doctor I think is important for me to be. Not all residents do research. Many surger, surgical residencies are sort of seven-year programs, five years of clinical, two years of research. Uh, not all. Um, my program is sort of split down the middle. About half of us will do research time and half will not. And then there are other purely clinical programs where research is sort of an unusual thing. And it, you have to have a program that's sort of amenable to it because they have to let you go for two years from the clinical work and they need to have a way to fill someone into your spot and all of that. So it's it was definitely a criteria for me when I thought about residencies to go to a place where I knew that I was going to be able to do research. And I think that if you go to a place where everyone has to do research, you know, you can kind of get these unfortunate situations where people are sort of forced out who maybe don't want to do, really want to do research, but are just sort of sent into the lab and are sort of there, not entirely willingly, and they would rather be doing clinical work. So yeah, I think the people, you know, from my program who go into research um, are the people who are really interested in it. And, and I think as a result, they tend to, you know, do, do really well and do interesting things. And, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity now to be on a bunch of papers, uh, mostly from medical school, and uh, we're working on a bunch of stuff in the lab now, and it really feels like I'm contributing something to what we know about how to take care of shock, which is a huge issue. Uh, it's a huge issue in trauma. It's a huge issue in any infectious state. Um, we see it, it for, you know, any number of reasons, probably more in surgery than in any, anything else. And, um, and so I think it's it's great to be part of you know understanding that on a really basic level, um, and it'll make me a better clinician to do that. Your other question um, about uh, spending time with patients' families, I really love to do it. You know, as a as an intern and a second year resident, I did it more than most other residents because it was my job to sort of not be in the operating room and be out and available to talk to families. Um, so I did a lot of that sort of coordinating and talking to families. I don't think we do it enough. I don't think that we, I've had it like enough of an opportunity to do it, but I, I, I do find that it sort of makes for the most poignant stories and the most interesting things to talk about. So for that reason, I think I, I talk about it more and that I think also goes into your question about medical interns versus surgical interns. And yes, there is a difference. Um, and part of it is that surgical interns, yeah, do more surgery and are sort of based on the surgical services. And it's really, it's, there's sort of two internships that you can do. I mean, there are, there's medicine and, uh, surgery. Those are the internships that are left. And, and for residencies that require that you do an internship before you start their residency. And let's just get sort of clear on the terminology here. There's, you know, residencies are sort of the specialty training. Uh, in surgery and medicine, your internship and your and your uh, residency kind of run straight through, right? My, as a 
as an intern, I was really just a first year surgery resident. Um, but if you are going to orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery or radiology or anesthesia, um, you have to do a year of one of the basic specialties. Um, and the surgical subspecialties, they do their internship in surgery. And in the medical subspecialties, uh, things like anesthesia, they usually split between surgery and medicine. Sometimes they just do a year of medicine. Radiology usually does a year of medicine. Often they do a year of surgery. Sometimes psychiatry almost always does a year of medicine. Some emergency medicine programs uh, have their uh, people do an intern year in medicine or surgery. Um, and uh, and I think that the, the experiment experience of being an intern is probably almost exactly the same. I mean, except for the occasional trip to the OR as a um, surgery intern or like more time in a medical clinic as a medicine intern, the fundamental skills that you're getting are almost exactly the same, really. Um, and I think that you, I mean, in that intern year, you know, you just, you learn to be a workhorse, basically. You learn how to make things at the hospital work. You learn how to dictate. You learn how to delegate. You learn how to stay up really late um, and work on little sleep. I mean, those are sort of the fundamental things you learn. Um, it's all efficiency and productivity and sleep deprivation. And it's just sort of a slightly different way to learn them uh, between medicine and surgery. I think the, the medicine docs, uh, you know, either in, as surgery as surgery residents, you don't spend a huge amount of time in the OR, but you do go to the OR sometimes. And then I think the medicine patients, or the medicine docs, you know, during that time when you're sort of running around to the ORs or getting stuff done, they are still rounding with their teams uh, and their attendings and they're spending more time with each patient for sure uh, than we do. And, uh, you know, the surgeons are probably a little busier. Um, they're, they're kind of have more balls in the air at once. Um, but again, I think a pretty similar experience. Um, that said, you can't do a medicine internship and then start in surgery um, and vice versa uh, for your residency because um, they do sort of hone you into the specific mindset of each of their specialties, which are pretty different. Um, and Cody, I think I, I think you said something really, uh, really important, um, which is that uh, your best look into the lives of doctors is scrubs. Um, and I will say, I think you've picked the right program to watch, to learn what it is to be a doctor. Um, I've watched all the medical shows out there, um, Grey's Anatomy and House and ER and all of those things. And the only show I've seen that gets it right, that really gets the spirit of being a resident right and gets it surprisingly right is Scrubs. I really think that show captures residency beautifully um and it's medicine interns mostly and it's the medical side of things mostly so you sort of get this sort of the surgeons kind of coming in and out but the sense of it is still really right i remember a couple episodes from the first season i watched it all on dvd at one point during internship and just sort of sat there saying oh my god this is so true um there's an episode uh in the first season i think it is um where they're at uh at Christmas time and uh, the surgeon um, is uh, who's this guy Turk is uh, he's so excited about Christmas and he, uh, he gets all his Christmas stuff out but he has to work on Christmas and he he goes in with so much Christmas spirit and then is sort of 
gets one disaster after another disaster after another disaster and keeps getting into bed and having to get up again for some new trauma or disaster or tragedy. And I have had that experience. Um, I've had that experience on Christmas. I've had that experience on Thanksgiving. Um, and it's, you know, it's so true to just sort of be constantly confronted with these disasters and yet to still somehow have to find the goodness and the the festive spirit of what it is to be alive um, is really it's a challenge and it's it's so important and they did a great job of capturing it they also did an uh, an episode where there was a early on there was a sort of super intern who uh, seemed indestructible seemed to know everything seemed to be on top of everything all the time and everyone was sort of jealous of him and then he melts down and quits and uh i watched that and sort of thought oh interesting story and then uh and then a few years or a few months later um i almost did the same thing so you know, I was the top of my program. I was the sort of Superman in the program. And I almost walked out. I just couldn't take it. Um, the sort of constant uh, pressure and the constant need to always be right and the constant um, inability, despite however right you were, to stop bad things from happening to good people. Um, and I thought they captured that in retrospect. They were right on. So if you are not watching Scrubs, um, I recommend it. I take a look and, um, and, and, and know that the odd bit of, uh, over the top humor aside, that's really not that different from, uh, from what we do. Um, you're watching the right shows. Um, Grey's Anatomy. No bearing on reality. House, doubly so. Um, but, uh, you know, good for, for what they are. Take no advice about what medicine is or should be or could be or isn't from watching those television programs. But, uh, but Scrubs is a good one. So, Cody, thank you. Thank you for your uh, questions. Uh, this podcast is running long now. Um... I guess uh, a question I would have for you guys is, um, as we think about the anniversary, what is it um, that keeps you listening to the podcast? What what do you like to hear? Um, what can I tell you? What can I do to tell you more about what it is to be in my shoes? Um, what can I offer you that, that would make this podcast more compelling? Um, I definitely want to hear from you about that. Do you have favorite episodes? Um, I want to hear from you about that. You are a uh, you're a loyal listenership um, to be uh, to be still listening this far out, or if you're just joining us, uh, know that you're joining a committed crew of of some starting to sound pretty familiar names out there. Um, and it's been uh, it's been an honor to to be part of this podcast to be the root of this podcast for a year now so let me know send some email to the new email 
dashingmd at gmail.com. Become a friend of Dr. or, or uh, of the Dashing Doctor, D O C T E U R, on Facebook. Um, just check out the uh, check out the feed feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd or iTunes searching for dashingmd. And you know if you're listening to the podcast um, through one of these uh, feed sites, um, leave a review. Uh, a couple of people have reviewed uh, the podcast on iTunes. Uh, I've tried to sort of accommodate uh, everything that they talk about. Um, I've sort of, you know, I sort of cruise around and see if people are leaving feedback uh, for the podcast in various places every now and then. And uh, if you're getting this fed to you from somebody um, and you want to just leave a quick review, I would love to uh, to have that, to hear about that. And, you know, if you want to give us one star for being interminably dull, then please do. Let me know. I, I, I really want to hear uh, how we can uh, make the podcast more effective um, and, a, and a better community for discussion about all of these issues. Check out pictures of the kittens on dashingmd.blogspot.com um, and uh, let me know what you think of them as well. Only nice comments, please. Because um, I'm protective. They're so nice. Anyway, hope things are going well for all of you out there. Look forward to hearing from you soon and looking forward to being back uh, for a second year of podcasting in the near future. Watch this space. Until then, be well.